Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is April the 1st, 2021. It seems as if it's been April the 1st throughout 2020 and much of 2021 in terms of COVID and all the weird things that have been happening in America. Uh, and today, if you were to read the headlines, you might think there are lots of April Fool's jokes. Uh, many of the headlines are about our current president, a uh, mid-70s guy who's trying to modernize, trying to reinvent America. Uh, the headlines are all about Biden's two or three trillion dollar attempt to uh, rewire quite literally and metaphorically America, climate change, uh, self-driving cars, um, electric cars, and, and, and many other things. Uh, what Biden, of course, is doing is trying to lead America from the 20th to the 21st century uh, and all the headlines are about whether he's going to be able to do this. Uh, the FT calls it a big and heavy lift. Uh, the Wall Street Journal, inevitably, of course, as a skeptic, as a paper on the right, uh, is warning people about the Biden taxes. Uh, we have more and more articles about Biden's leadership style, what kind of leader he is, how to inspire Ed Luce in the FT, one of my favorite columnists, the guy's been on the show several times, suggests that Biden has a historic opportunity. We had Evan Osnos on the show a few months ago, the biographer of Biden, uh, describing him both as an American dreamer and some, somewhat of a realist. Um, Osnos had a wonderful description of uh, Biden, uh, 67 years old. Uh, this was... Uh, Several years ago, uh, uh, his smile has been rejuvenated to such a gleam that it inspired a popular tweet during the 2012 campaign. Uh, Biden's teeth are so white, they're voting for Romney. So Biden is kind of struggling to not only reinvent America, but reinvent himself as a leader. This issue then of leadership is critical, particularly uh, in April 2021 in America. Uh, and I thought it would be a good opportunity, given the challenges and opportunities of leadership in America today, to have one of our most original thinkers on what it takes and means to be a leader uh, in the 21st century. Um, Nancy Giordano is a self-described futurist, an authority on uh, leadership, and she has a new book out, which is called Leadering, the way visionary leaders play bigger. Uh, Nancy. Yes, sir. Hi. That was quite an introduction, wasn't it? I for know, you? Right. <laughs> um, I know you tend to focus mostly on the corporate space, but I'm assuming that Joe Biden is a relevant example for you in terms of not only the reinvention of himself, but the reinvention of America. After all, being president of the United States is essentially being CEO of the country. What advice and warnings would you give to Biden as he struggles to reinvent both himself and the country uh, in April 2021. It's funny because I haven't thought of it through the lens of him reinventing as much as it is. He's trying to thread this needle between where we've been and where we're headed in a way that doesn't alienate people on either end of it. And so I think he's in this, he's very emblematic, I think, of any of the 
corporate leaders that we see and certainly others that are trying to figure out how to navigate these competing tensions in this transition. So I think that he has uh, also trying to rebalance what it is that we've all just been through for the last four years that some people, you know, almost half the country thought was the right way to go. Uh, so I, I see him as um, trying to figure out how, to, how, how bold he gets to be in a world in which he didn't have a you know, super striking mandate to go do it, but does have the resources. You know, he has the, the House and the Senate to be able to forward this agenda for at least a couple of years. And I love that he's actually taking advantage of it. But as you see, like as he tries to figure out immigration and border security, the minute you try and reverse something, it creates another unintended or, or hopefully, um, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, that they should have thought through what the consequences of that are. And so I think that he's just, you know, he's trying to navigate. He's, he's to me more of an example of the fact that we need to navigate versus replicate. We cannot just keep doing the same things in the past and just sort of say, we're going to go to this era versus that era and pull out that playbook versus this playbook. He's really trying to reinvent the playbook. Navigate versus replicate, the, uh, the title of, of the third chapter in your book. Um, leadering, uh, Nancy, I have, to, I have to be audacious here, or perhaps it's you being audacious in coming up with this word. It's not really a word, is it? Leadering? Leader is not a verb. Well, I think they were constantly, continuously inventing things. So why not invent words that make more that are more precise and help us along the way? So actually, leadering is a word that my friend Peter Vanderauer once mentioned to me, and not necessarily in this context. It was just a word he threw out, and I don't even know what his definition of it was. But I was like, oh my gosh, that captures what it is that we need to be doing differently, because I think we need to be thinking about it as a dynamic action, not as a place that we hold. And so as we started you know, thinking about this work, this work really came out of my work, Andrew, in which I am actually consulting with organizations and clients and teams or giving talks and hearing the questions that come out of it. And what you keep seeing is that this old way of building what it is that we built in the 20th century does not hold up in the 21st. So why do we keep using that frame of how it is that we organize ourselves and how it is that we prioritize what our uh, action should be and our, where our research would go across that old frame. So I think that leadering is just a way of being able to signal that it's time for a really big shift. You know, we're heading out of the industrial era into what I describe as the productivity era. It's a very different physics. It works very differently. So the way that we're approaching it should as well. It's interesting, Nancy. Um, whilst in some ways your book might be thought of as quite um, progressive and uh, cutting edge, uh, on the other hand, though, you're, you're falling back on a very traditional notion, that of whether we call it leadering or leadership, you still believe in hierarchies then? You still believe no, that no, 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 somebody no. should be in control? Is that fair? No, I think that people should take action. I don't think it should be in a hierarchical form at all. Hierarchical, I never get that word right, form at all. And if you read through it, it's absolutely about the dissolution of that. It's about the actual empowerment, maybe the right word, the enablement, the agency that each of us have to go build the future that we want to see. So for me, it's much more of a redistribution of all that than it is in any way framing it from this hierarchy. But how would that work? I mean, still companies are organized on a top-down basis, whether it's Joe Biden uh, or uh, Elon Musk uh, uh, or, uh, or Jack Dorsey at Twitter. It seems as if leaders, CEOs, if anything, becoming more and more like superstars, like celebrities. Um, well, I think because we're in a culture where it is that we are trying to make sense of the world around us and we still look to these examples, right? But I look at Satya Nadella and I will say a very, very strong leader, but an organization that's really trying hard to think about how do we... Yeah, but that's um, a pretty shitty organization, isn't it, Microsoft? On uh, some measures, yes. and some measures, no, right? So that becomes... Are they a client? Are they a client, Microsoft? No, no, no. So I can be rude about them. You can be as rude as well with anyone. I mean, I'm joking about in some, ways, in some ways, of course, it's a remarkable organization. They have invented and reinvented themselves. And they're still a very valuable company. 
Um, and then you've got a giant culture shift with such a giant labor force, right? With such a giant workforce, they figured out a way to be a big culture shift that allowed them to be uh, successful on at least uh, you know some metrics in the last few years than they had been in the past. And so I do think that there are ways of being able to navigate this in a way in which you empower more people or again, give more people agency. So the way I talk a lot about it is that we have built structures in the 20th century that allowed us to control and really were focused on efficiency and short-term profitability. And that was really the mandate. And if you look to now, whether it's Microsoft or Netflix or any organization or Tesla, whoever you want to throw into that mix or countries like uh, Jacinda Arden's work in New Zealand or others in Scandinavia, you start to think about what does it take to build for the 21st century that is so much more dynamic, which so much is shifting and changing. These technologies will literally reinvent the way in which we do every single thing, right? So whether it's education, whether it's retail, whether it's finance, whether it's society in itself, it's about privacy. I mean, there's so many questions that are being uh, raised. And we're only, you know, very, very early days in. I'm really not convinced of this argument. You, you, you throw up the example of Elon Musk, who's clearly a, an iconic figure. Um, uh, actually, that's sorry, that's Paul Polman, who we'll get to oh, next. Uh, Elon Musk um, uh, earlier this month crowned himself the te- quite literally the techno king of Tesla, for better or worse. Right. What's new about that? We've had monarchs in the past. We'll probably have them in the future. I'm not saying he's the guy. I'm not saying that if you look at his organizations and the people's you know, happiness as a part of them or no, but the fact is that he is changing the conversation around transportation, right? I will say I own a Tesla. Um, it's got some pros and some cons. Uh, but when you think about the fact that it is, has really become the um, the closest we, I guess the way I look at it is that he has had such success at being able to break through to a luxury tier of. No, I, I get that. But, uh, you know, Steve Jobs did the same thing. But these were still incredibly uh, autocratic, um, dynamic, brilliant leaders. But it didn't seem to be anything new in terms of their leadership. Has Musk done anything differently in terms of. I, I'm not putting him as an example of what I think is a super great leader. I'm not saying that Musk is it. You know, Musk is the only thing that he shows up as really authentic as the person he wants to be. And he's willing to you know, push against a lot of status quo. And he's willing to be able to kind of like, has enough, you know, authority at this point that he feels as though he can go and say whatever he wants to go say, however he wants to go say it, you know, uh, consequences be damned. I don't think that that's necessarily, I think it's more of the Silicon Valley kind of mentality that I don't think is a super great example of all this. What I'm really advocating for, Andrew, is a much more caring perspective, one that actually looks at all the stakeholders and thinks about, you know, the consequences of our actions and our behaviors and how we steward resources. Um, And so I look for examples that are more like that, right? And people who are willing to go into new terrain that they haven't been in before. You know, Eileen Fisher, let's talk about her for a second, right? A fashion mogul who uh, 10 years ago started thinking about selling used clothes, if you will, gently used clothes inside her stores. No one was doing that at the time, but she could see there was a growing market for it. She could see that there was a you know shift toward uh, thinking about sustainability and uh, not away from fast fashion. And she was a pioneer in that. So we always talk about the tech people, but we don't talk about the people who are reinventing business in different ways. And I looked at those examples. Let's think about this distinction between leadership, which I think you probably uh, associate with the 20th century, and leadering. Uh, so leadership, and here's a chart from, from the book, Leadership is about predictability, efficiency, silos, extraction, incremental uh, ROI, return on investment, work for me. Leadering is about curiosity, empathy, ecosystems, contribution, audacious value, work with me. Um, tell me a little bit more about this distinction. What, 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 what is the big shift here? 
Well, I guess when, again, I have gone into organizations and we've talked a lot about in the past that there was this expectation that everything had to be, we had to be sure, right? We researched the hell out of things. We did really put a lot of money into R&D to make sure that we did not make any mistake. And then we go and launch it and we hope that it's successful. We have clients who had, you know, put products into retail and had six to nine weeks to be able to prove that it was going to be perfect. And if it wasn't, it just got booted out and there was no learning. That was part of that. There was nothing inside the organization that figured out, okay, what's the next you know, version or iteration of it? How do we take this and sort of make the next version better? It was just sort of scrapped and start over again. And so there's this uh, much different way of thinking about the fact that we are curious about what it is that is going on around us. And we build learning organizations, right? The ability to test something, trial something, figure out how to make it better, and then build it in. And then we continue iterating on it. So there's a analog world that has not kept up with, I would argue, the way the digital world has been doing its thing. So that's the first, right? How do we incentivize curiosity in our organizations? I can't tell you how many times we've had clients that go, oh, we don't want people to be too curious. We don't want to send someone to that conference. We don't want them to explore in that direction because then they'll become too curious and then they'll run amok and we won't know what to do with all that. And I think that that's, you know, an issue. So it's not even about our individual curiosity. It's also organizationally. How do we incentivize and um, create places for that curiosity to be expressed could you give some examples? You, you gave uh, one example of uh, models, uh, uh, par- paradigms, if you like, of, of leadering who, who you, you use in the book and in your life to prove this new model. Well, it's to be inspired. Like, I'm not trying to, to prove it. I'm making a case for the fact that what we've done in the past is... There aren't that many examples of leadering leaders is that right um well again i'll go back to jacinda arden i think is a, a really uh, why i mean what's what's leadering about her she's just a, a progressive smart young politician right who read you know to, to talk to children about the fact that santa was still going to be coming she literally talked to the country in a way that says listen i need you to really buckle down here so that we can like take the hard medicine here so that we can have uh, a much safer future there and she will bond the trust of everyone right she's put people into office that had never held office before that have voices now that are seen inside the organization she's thinking about uh, creating a four-day work week she's actually really thinking about the humanity of her role not just the efficiency of her role. and let's just like, remind people of who you're talking about there the current prime minister of new zealand right um she's a model of leadering someone who 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 brings a different approach to how to uh main a much more caring a much more holistic a much more thoughtful approach to it much more responsible approach to it yes we had uh rosalind lind uh, on the show uh recently um nancy has written the woman's history of the modern world how radicals rebels and every women revolutionized the last 200 years. Um, is there something female about leadering? You, I'm not saying that all, all, all women have to be leadering as opposed right. to men who are leaders, but- um, This is a lot in this conversation. So first let's make the distinction between female or women and feminine, right? So I would argue there are feminine traits around being more collaborative, about being more caring, about not about having humility and learning as opposed to having to know all the things. You know, by the way, I just, um, I Googled right before I came on your podcast, why it is that so many of these conversations I'm having are with men. And it turns out 21% of the top podcast hosts are only 21% are women, uh, the rest mm-hmm. are men. So there's this really interesting dynamic about sort of men and coming in with the sort of having, you know, the answers and the bravado and wanting to go try new things and women not necessarily always jumping in quite the same way. And so I think there's responsibility back and forth. I think there is a Although I, I have to say in, in response to that, in terms of my podcast, obviously I'm male, but uh, my my guests tend to be relatively 50-50 if you break Well it done. I think that's great because I think we need both. I think we need both masculine and feminine traits that are building this future moving forward. So I would argue feminine traits 
of, of which we associate with being more caring, right? Being more empathetic, being, again, more collaborative, thinking about the whole as opposed to a part, those kinds of things. Yes, those traits are the ones that are rising and the ones that we need to navigate. Again, tremendous amount of complexity and really potent technologies. That's the reality. We're going to have all this like horsepower and how we're going to steward it in a way in which we feel as though we're keeping everyone safe and inclusive. Because if we keep down the same track, if we look at all the breakdowns of the 20th century and we then, you know, imagine those in the 21st with even more powerful technologies, it doesn't bode well. It doesn't, that's not the future I want. I want one that is actually more inclusive and safer and in which everyone gets a chance to thrive. And I do believe these technologies will empower us to do that if we're stewarded in the right way. We had uh, one of our female guests on the show a uh, couple of months ago was the uh, was the scholar Ruth Ben-Ghiat. She has a, an excellent new book out, it's done very well, called Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, which tries to make sense of the authoritarian reaction against democracy in terms of the rise of the strong man. Um, President Trump, of course, uh, Donald Trump or ex-President Trump, uh, is a very good example of this. We had Carlos Lozada on the show. We've had many shows about Trump. Is there something, do you think, about this strongman reaction from yeah. Turkey to Russia to the United States to Brazil to the Philippines that reflects this shift in your mind from leaders to leadering? Well, I, I'll put it a different way, which I think is that there is, as there's so much change and so much a transition that is happening. People feel very scared that they're not going to be part of it. And as you look at the income divide continuing to increase, you can see that that is actually not a completely insane thing for people to be worried about and thinking about, right? As we, you know, he slash she who holds the algorithm, the majority or he, uh, will have a tremendous amount of power and a tremendous amount of influence and a tremendous amount of wealth. And more and more people are feeling disconnected from that and feeling isolated from that. So then they get scared and they look to an easy answer, right? Complexity is very scary. And so they go to the simple answer. And so a patriarch who comes and says, daddy will take care of you is a very intoxicating, very seductive message. And so there are people who are taking advantage of that and fully exploiting that. So that's one side of it, I believe. The other side of it, I do think, is that as power shifts, the people who are holding on to it feel very threatened by that. And we should not in any way be surprised by that, right? There's yin and yang. That's why these things exist the way they do. Um, you know, Dark and light exist together for a reason. And so as things rise here, there's going to be a reaction there. And so I think it's sort of the last gasps of holding on to a very dominant patriarchal structure that will eventually you know, lose its relevance. But for now, we're gonna see it like fight to the death to hold on. I'm not sure. I'm not convinced that it's the last gas. It seems as if these strong leaders around the world, whether it's Bolsonaro or Putin. Yeah, or they're Biden, rising right now through this fear that people have that they want to go to someplace who's got the answer. Yes. And feeds them, I would argue, uh, misleading truths, right? Or you can argue lies about the fact that these they're going to be able to go and like take us all back to a nostalgic future in which everyone like, you know, uh, the good old days and they don't exist anymore. And by the way, those good old days didn't take every take good care of anybody anyway. I, mean, I shouldn't say anybody, but didn't take care of the whole back in the day, right? We've got environmental degradation, we've got ecological degradation, we've certainly, you know, we're seeing all the rise now of um, women and uh, other groups that didn't feel as though they were included in so much of that decision-making and so much of the power that was distributed and the, the value that was distributed. And so there is a shift that's happening. And, and in that shift, you're going to find the tension. The same thing we see with incumbent organizations that are part of industries that are being you know, reinvented and rethought, uh, whether that's the energy world or eventually it's going to be the financial world, you're going to see this pushback. It's natural. 
right? It's part of the tension of being able to get to the new. So I think it is scary on the one hand is the bigger thing for me, I think the part that I worry about is in the world of so much data collection and analysis and aggregation, um, the, it will be used to exploit in a pretty dramatic way uh, if we don't think about it uh, more safely and in and, and a much more thoughtful way. And so then there, there's this the totalitarian um, or an authoritarian uh, pull that's happening right now creates a lot of power. And I think that we need to be very, very aware of that and think about privacy in a pretty um, a pretty important way. Uh, I pulled up the Paul Polman uh, image by mistake earlier, but again, it may be in a, a Freudian era because it, every we have. I've had many of these conversations, and every time t- people talk about more inclusive leaders, more thoughtful, more to, to use your word, leadering, people use this example of Paul Polman, who used to run, uh, I think, Procter and Gamble. Very Unilever. Uh, he was a CEO of Unilever. Right, you know, Unilever, a uh, really smart guy. I've heard him speak, actually, and he's very good. Um, rather than talking about Pullman, who, who are other models? You, you, you mentioned um, the, yeah, funny. the Prime Minister a of uh, New Zealand and a couple of other people, but I'd like more models because otherwise it's not convincing. Otherwise, it's just all theory. Well, I mean, again, I, I, maybe this is a theory, right? This is, a, well, my, this is my experience of having walked into organizations and been really, really frustrated that they were unable to absorb and respond to new information and continue to go down a track that is going to make them less and less relevant. So I'm trying to figure out how do you shake that loose and have them think about it differently. And when we've come in and done consulting work, we've been able to think about this, again, from a, a, just from a different lens. It's almost like you're going in as a holistic practitioner versus an allopathic doctor, right? And trying to explain to you know, leaders about why that is a useful thing to do and why that actually creates and generates more value and more success has been challenging. So I've just been trying to put it into a framework that they can understand and help people feel less afraid of being able to let go of a map that is outdated and be able to figure out how to navigate with a compass and a North Star, right? So that's my theory and my thinking, and it sort of worked in all of my work. So maybe there's another way of doing it. So I don't know that I'm trying to push a theory as much as I'm trying to help people through a really, really difficult time. But what's interesting is actually before Paul Pullman, the person who was sort of the poster child for this was a man named Ray Anderson, who was CEO of Interface Carpets. And he was an old Southern gentleman who worked in a petroleum heavy industry, which is carpet. And all of a sudden he got this sort of awakening around the fact that they were plundering the earth and not using resources well. And so he just was so compelling and changed the whole organization, thought so much about, again, sustainability and being able to change so many of their products and services in the way that they did what they did, including carpet squares. They was the invented floor of LOR so that you could actually interchange a portion of the carpet if there was a spot in it. And they patterned it after patterns in nature so that it looked whole, but actually had parts that could be interchanged like the leaves on like if you looked at a picture of a bunch of trees, right, there's a homogenation to it, but there's also a breakdown where you can pull it out. And so he just was so inventive in the way that he thought about um, his work and his responsibility in it. And so I think that people like, again, so this goes back to you can have an old white Southern man who was so provocative in his industry and really changing the conversation to someone like Paul Pullman, who really, one of Paul Pullman's uh, big contributions was pushing you back against uh, short-term earnings and this idea that we were going to do quarterly reporting so that everybody could figure out every day, you know, on a scorecard whether or not we were doing it right. And he's like, we're a long-term investment. We're thinking about this from a long-term gain. Um, David Crane, who was CEO of NRG Energy, tried to do the same thing as he was moving into renewables and unfortunately got pushed out by the board because people thought that he was moving too fast and didn't understand, again, the mechanics of renewable versus fossil fuels. So there's a lot of people who have tried, Indra Nuri uh, was an extraordinary leader at PepsiCo, and she was trying to usher in a better for you portfolio of products. 
Um, and again, got a lot of pushback from bottlers who were frustrated that she wanted to do that. And one year they didn't go to the Super Bowl and they did a whole thing about empowering entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs instead. So uh, we've seen examples of people pushing into this arena. Right, but not changing very much. You have, uh, again, another chart, winning, caring, a lot of buzzwords, prioritizing externalities. I don't know what that means, empowering tech. You just said that tech wasn't only the answer. But the reality, it seems as if, in my view at least, is the problem may not be organizations. The, The problem is capitalism itself. These organizations are bureaucracies. And getting rid of hierarchies is almost impossible. So most of these leaders who come into these big organizations with nice ideas, maybe nice ideas uh, which which have been provided by people like yourself, they almost always fail. Isn't the problem itself capitalism? Well, first of all, I don't know that they always fail. I think that we're always... Well, you haven't given me many examples of ones that have succeeded. I mean, Pullman, you just mentioned PepsiCo. I don't see much difference there. These these fast food companies are poisoning the earth and poisoning us. I, 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 th- yeah, but you know, Pepsico also added coconut water to it and they added rice Well, cakes big to deal. It. I mean, yeah, uh, how many cool. people watching this show know Pepsico's coconut oil? Isn't the problem, though, capitalism? Another of the headlines today in Jacobin magazine, which is an anti-capitalist publication, is, and there's a much younger, thinner version of Bernie Sanders here, uh, about how... Uh, using as a model Sanders's early socialism should be the model. Do you really believe that capitalism and large organizations can be reformed? After all, their their focus, their bottom line is profit. Um, well, legally, they are bound by this point to look at it this way. So I think the part of the question is, is there, there's always this conversation that if we're a caring organization, then we can't also be a profitable organization that we're not serving our shareholders well. And I would argue the more caring that we are, that actually the more profitable we will be in the future because that trust will become a really important part of this. I think thinking again and building with empathy will be an important part of this. I think how- Dan, you can say this stuff, but give me an example. Yeah. More you know, caring, I, more profitable. I, I, give me a really caring are. company that's very profitable. It seems as if the most profitable companies, the Facebooks, the Googles, Amazon in particular, they seem particularly uncaring. Right. Well, in this moment, I'm going to argue with you, yes. Wouldn't it be great if we could shift that so that that isn't You just case. said that caring and profitability go together. I don't see any evidence of that. Um, well, if you go through and you look at the you know ESG companies that are the top 20 or 10 or whatever they are, you look at those and say, those are companies who actually care a lot about environmental um stewardship and care about to some extent you know the idea of the societal parts of this and so we're looking at more and more examples in which they're being measured that way what i was going to say is early on before you interrupted was the fact that we've got these systems right now that incentivize short-term decision making right and that look at only profitability through the lens of an economic lens and don't think so externalities just to go back to your point before are all the things that the business creates that aren't accounted for in the actual portion of the business right the buying and selling mm-hmm. of the service or the product so if i think about my environmental footprint if i think about how it is that i pay my uh talent both inside the organization and our contract talent that's actually a really big one is how that we now contract for services and whether or not there's res- responsibility to make sure that the people who are coming in as contractors also get some of the same um, protections or benefits or access to things that people in the past have gotten. There's a great story about two janitors, one that worked at Kodak and one that works for Apple now and completely different kinds of work structure. So these are choices that organizations make and they can make different choices. And we see the whole world of B Corps that are joining and becoming more and more interesting. The CEO of Danone was just ousted again because they thought that he was being too socially conscious. I mean, Apple is an interesting, I I don't know, perhaps Tim Cook might be a model of someone who's trying 
to combine a profitable company with a more ethical company. I buy that. You kind of think about on the data side of it. Yes. Whether or not yeah. on the manufacturing I side of it, that. I'm not sure. But on the data side of it, yes, they are trying to hold themselves up as someone who cares about that. Well, Leadering uh, if, if, uh, is a really interesting, provocative book. Wake, Wonder, Navigate, Connect, Contribute, Be Audacious, Thrive. Uh, as, as you can tell, I'm not convinced, but many of you will be. And Nancy is a, is a very articulate, persuasive writer and thinker. Uh, Nancy, you are in Austin, Texas at the moment in these strange times where even in Texas, I think you're not allowed out or I hope you're not allowed out. What else should people be reading in addition to leadering? Uh, first of all, we've never been on lockdown in Texas, to be clear. We've had some... Uh some things shut down, but we've never been on full lockdown. Is, the, uh, is, is Texas a model for leadering or a model to avoid? Uh, I think, you know, uh, I'm not a big fan of our governor. Uh, so I would argue that that is not the way to, to go about it. But I would argue that there's an interesting thing about what Texas attracts is libertarians who want to feel that they've got their freedom. So it's a, it's a again, this goes back to that threading the needle between public good and private uh, liberty that I think that in Texas we are, it's a very, very open conversation here, which I do appreciate being. That's the reason I came to Texas is because I wanted to be in a conversation that was more multidimensional versus only left or only right. There's actually space for a lot more of that here. Is that why you um, went to Austin, Texas? Yeah, very is there specific. a lot of multidimensional conversation in Austin, Texas? Yeah, very much so. Where did you come from? Santa Monica. Oh, okay. Right. So less multidimensional, I would assume. Everyone assumes that you think one way. And if you think outside of that, you're considered, you know, not loyal. And I think here there's much more room for the conversation, which I really do. And that's why you're seeing more and more people move here, I think, as part of that. So um, uh, books that I would also recommend. And I'm, again, I'm not trying to convince anybody as much. I'm just trying to open up a conversation, Andrew, and say, what are the other ways that we can think about doing this? And how do we build for a society that is actually much more resilient moving forward and much more inclusive and safe? So that's my main goal. Right. Um, and so when I think about other books that are helping prepare us for that, The Future's Faster Than You Think by my friend Stephen Kotler and Peter Diamandis, that really does lay out this tech feature that you aren't so convinced about yet. But the fact I, I talked to Stephen the other day, he believes there's 14 internet size revolutions that are right at our fingertips at this moment. Like we're at the what? 14? Yeah, I mean, that's 14 just the kind of, internet sized you know, revolutions that are happening. So I do think uh, sort of fairly meaningless futurism that just gives people a headache. They've got to be more concrete than that. I mean, that's... Oh, absurd. you know, again, you you do it your way. I love what Stephen does. In this book, actually, they really make a very strong case for the fact that all these technologies are starting to emerge and what it is will happen, what will happen when they converge and how they will change almost every uh, industry. So I do think it's a good primer to have, even if you want to disagree with the timelines of some of it about what I do believe is happening in real time and how that will take us forward. Um, and then because I am... What was uh, the name of the book again? Sorry. Future is Faster than you think. Which is certainly true. It's a good title. It's a great title, right? And then he just wrote another book called The Art of the Impossible, which is how to individually level up to be able to navigate such complexity. Uh, and then and there's another one, Competing in the Age of AI, that I think is a provocative book to consider. I'm not sure that I agree with every argument that's in it, but I work in artificial intelligence now. Can we, can, uh, by the way, uh, Nancy, finally, finally, can we convince, uh, can, can we program AI to be leadering? Uh, AI is a technology, how we deploy it and how we create it. Sure. It absolutely could be. I actually do think that AI is a really, really powerful tool. And I think we're better off working with it than against it. Like, I don't think pushing it away is a way to go. I think stewarding it in a way in which that we're all held well in it is the way to go. That's what I'm you know, hugely advocating for. I watched Coded Bias last night, the new documentary uh, that talks about all the bias that is in AI by Joy, whose last name I can never pronounce, but this extraordinary scholar from MIT 
Um, it was all black women that were in this documentary, except for Kathy O'Neill, who, uh, and it's just, I mean, there's a great conversation that's happening right now about how do we build so this. I haven't thing. convinced you, Nancy, to become a socialist. You're not joining the Bernie camp. No, because here's the deal. I, I, I'm actually, there's a, another whole thing in which you talk about capitalism and socialism are basically just, you know, fighting it out on the same scale of domination. There's a great scholar named uh, Rianne Eisler. I'd love for you to look into her work. Yeah, she's been on my show, actually. She's been on this show, Rianne. Um, so we built a whole thing around partnerism.org last year that was a way of being able to talk again about power with versus power over. Uh, if you look at the course of him, human history back in the day, there was a way in which we shared power that didn't have it in either of these two constructs. Uh, and so she'll talk about the fact that we've taken a domination detour of the last few thousand years, you know, again, espoused by both either Marx or Adams, I mean, Adam Smith. But uh, the fact is that there's another way. So I'm actually going the third way. I'm not being pulled into either of these two. Well, Nancy Giordano, the mistress of the third way, thank you so much for appearing on the show. <laughs> I like that title. Leader in good new book, and we will have you back on the show again to argue about socialism versus capitalism versus the third way. Thank you so much. Explore, explore, Andrew. It doesn't always have to be so content. Explore, Nancy. That's what we're all in the business of doing, exploring. Thank you so much. Thanks. X.